I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. Today's guest, Audrey Kurth Cronin, is one of the world's leading experts on security and how conflicts end. A professor of security and technology, she was the founding director of the Center for Security, Innovation, and New Technology at American University, the director of war and statecraft at the U.S. National War College, and a specialist in terrorism at the Congressional Research Service advising members of Congress in the aftermath of 9-11. She was the director of studies for Oxford University's Changing Character of War program, was chair of the Global Agenda Council on Terrorism of the World Economic Forum, and has held a number of positions in the federal government's executive branch, including in the Office of the Secretary of Defense for Policy. Currently, she is the founding director of the Carnegie Mellon University's Institute for Strategy and Technology. She is the author of four books on terrorism, including How Terrorism Ends, published in 2009, and Power to the People, published in 2019. Today's interview will focus on the ideas contained in How Terrorism Ends, particularly as applied to the current conflict between Israel and Hamas in Gaza. Audrey, welcome to Delving In. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Stuart. First off, I want to thank you for being available for this interview, because I, I can imagine you're a much sought after speaker and commentator at this time. And, and I hope that this conversation can add a little more light rather than heat to the kind of events that are intentionally designed to do the opposite, to enrage us, to polarize us, and to cause not only enormous suffering, but to unleash dynamics to perpetuate still more suffering down the road. I can't help asking you then how you decided to devote your career to studying such an incredibly difficult and painful topic. Stuart, that's a good question because it wasn't what I intended to do when I first started out. I grew up in an ordinary middle-class family. My father was in the Navy and I was lucky enough to earn a Marshall Scholarship to go to Oxford University. Otherwise, I would never have gotten a graduate degree. And while I was there, I studied security in all of its aspects. One of the things that was ongoing during those years was bombings and attacks by the Irish Republican Army and its various splinter groups. I experienced a number of false alarms, but also bomb threats and close calls during those years. That excited my interest in terrorism. But then frankly, it wasn't the only thing I was studying. Through the 1990s, though, I was looking at the Mujahideen in Afghanistan and had been focusing on U.S.-Russian relations. And when the Soviet Union fell apart, I focused much more closely in on the Mujahideen. So in other words, I knew a lot about Al-Qaeda well before 9-11, and it wasn't my intention only to focus on terrorism but I was one of the few people who actually knew about the phenomenon when 9-11 happened in the United States. And so from there, events were shaping my career almost as much as my desires and intentions were. Let's uh, leave the topic of Gaza for later in the, in the interview and after we've introduced some basic concepts. So that said, uh, one of the difficulties about studying terrorism is to define it in the first place. So at first glance, it would seem to be defined as a particularly brutal and repugnant method of resistance. But I think as you've understood it, it's much more than that. It invokes a complicated set of sociopolitical dynamics. So how is terrorism best understood? How would you define it? I think that terrorism always has consistent elements to it. We argue over what the definition is 
and people have a great deal of disagreement over gray areas, but the core elements of the definition are always consistent. So it's the user threat of use of violence. There has to be some kind of violence involved that is oriented toward civilians or non-combatants or otherwise innocent uh, people and for a political end. It has to be in some sort of political cause, whatever you think of that cause. And then the last aspect is there's a symbolic element to it. So there has to be an audience. So terrorism always has three sides to it. The two people that are involved or the two actors that are involved in the attack and then the victims of the attack, the targets of the attack. And then the third side always for terrorism is the audience that's watching. And it's trying to persuade the audience to either condemn the stronger power, the usually a state, or to maybe acquire more adherence, so more fighters for their cause? Yes. Terrorism always has consistent types of strategies, and different terrorist groups use different aspects of those strategies, depending on what they want to accomplish with their audience. But yes, usually the target is a state and trying to manipulate that state's reactions. And then from the terrorist point of view, the ends justify the means. That's right. And that's what it goes without saying, which is opposite to what most of us are taught as children, or hopefully are, but that principle is dispensed with. And it's disturbing how readily the audience, at least members of the audience, are willing to dispense with it as well. Terrorism is all about manipulating people's emotions. It's about using shock and using other kinds of horrendous violence in order to try to achieve greater strength. So if you think about it from the point of view of a group, and it's not easy to do that because, of course, people who are engaging in terrorism are doing something extremely heinous. But anyway, let's look at it from the point of view of the group. If you have to use terrorist attacks, usually it indicates that you're in a very weak position with respect to the target. And the state is always going to have much greater military force than any terrorist group is going to have. So what you're trying to do with a terrorist attack is to use shock, emotions, the reaction of your target or those people who support your target in order to accomplish your end by maximizing your power. It's a way to try to build power by using someone else's greater power. And then, of course, you could use rationalizations about civilians not really being civilians. They're part of the enemy. And that goes back probably to ancient styles of warfare where you might wipe out the whole other people. People might just be a tribe, not necessarily very large, but in those days that was what there was. And I guess you didn't have anything remotely resembling the ethics of war back then. And and it seems like we live in a uh, time when some people have those ethics and other people don't. I think it's true that we've had some evolution in how war has unfolded. It used to be par for the course for one side to simply wipe out the other side in certain points in history and in certain parts of the world. But now we have laws of war. We have uh, the just war tradition. We have humanitarian laws. And all of those things are designed to prevent us from falling into the worst aspects of our human nature, which is to simply be so angry about the shocking violence that's used against you that you react in a way that simply obliterates the other side. And the ethics of war, did that start right after World War II? The just war tradition goes back into the origins of the Jewish faith. It's In the Jewish Bible, you have some of that. That's true. And there are elements in Islam, there are elements in virtually every faith that try to 
constrain or guide the use of violence from within a religious framework. But I guess maybe what I'm getting at is that it was after World War II that it got formalized in international treaties and that sort of thing? There was an increase in the ethical guidelines, but you had Hague Conventions before, much before. So I think that this was a tradition that was developing over time. But it might help if I talked about the classic strategies of terrorism, Stuart, because I think that kind of gives you a sense of when they work and when they don't. Yeah, absolutely. And I was going to just quote from your book that repression has difficulty ending terrorism because terrorist groups resort to strategies of leverage that turn a state's strength against itself. Exactly. So there are four major strategies of terrorism, and it it helps you at least analyze what a group is trying to do if you think about the strategy that they're trying to use. And it depends on the, the structure of a group, the kind of cause that they're serving, what they're trying to achieve, what their aims are, as to which of these strategies they're going to use. So the first strategy is the one that everybody defaults to and believes that this is what's happening. And that's a strategy of compellence. That's what the political scientists would call it. But anyhow, it's a strategy where you only look at the two sides. And a group is trying to get a state, usually, or a target, to change its policies in some way, to change its behavior. And you're only looking at what the group wants and what the state wants, and it's only the two sides between them. And so strategies of compellence sometimes force a a country to change its policies. For example, the U.S. and French withdrawals from Lebanon that happened in 1983. The U.S. withdrawal from Somalia is often pointed to in 1993. Israel in Lebanon in 2000. These were cases where a group used a strategy to try to force a state to withdraw its troops and to change its policy. So that's a two-sided game, and it often is a tit-for-tat kind of thing. So strategies of compellence are what everybody thinks terrorism is always about. But I think actually strategies of compellence are the least often used. And another example would be compelling a colonial power to withdraw from their colony. Exactly. So strategy, exactly, Stuart. So strategies of compellence, when you can define a terrorist group's aims in terms of territory, which was the case with a lot of the colonial conflicts, although some of those actually became civil wars or became insurgencies, so it's a little more complicated. But in any case, if you can define a group's main objective in terms of territory, a strategy of compellence may be what they use. They're going to try to get a state to withdraw from that territory. But the other classic strategies are all strategies of leverage. So that's the remaining three strategies. And the first one is provocation. And so a strategy of provocation is trying to force a state to do something, not a policy, but something that is a vigorous overreaction that serves to undermine its own aims or its own uh, legitimacy or sometimes its own goals. Is there a way to define what an overreaction is? Usually it means something that is so much greater than what the terrorist group originally intended to achieve. It's not a specific defined policy aim, please withdraw these troops. It's more a tremendous crushing of a group as happened say in the 19th century with Narodnaya Volya. The purpose of that group, which means that means it's Russian for uh, people's will. The purpose of that group in killing the Tsar in 1881 was to force the Russian regime to crush it, to have such a huge response that it would completely turn all of the uh, inhabitants of Russia against the regime. 
and it would undermine the regime's legitimacy. So in that repression, they killed so many other people as well that they undermined their ability to govern. And it played a role in the coming of the Russian Revolution. Another strategy of provocation, I would say, happened with the opening of the First World War. So with the Black Hand and the killing of Gavril Princip, the 19-year-old the guy that had was tuberculosis ridden and really used by the Serbians. Anyway, the, the, the killing by Gavril Princip of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, it wasn't their intention, the Black Hand, to set off the First World War, but there was such an overreaction in response to that terrorist attack that you had one thing lead to another and there were lots of other inter intermediate causes, but still the reaction was so much greater than what would have served the Serbian nationalist cause. So that's provocation and overreaction. And there are lots of other examples in history. In fact, it's one of the most undermining responses to terrorism and one of the most common types of uh, strategies that a terrorist group tries to use. So that's the first strategy of leverage. Right. And the overreaction garners sympathy from the rest of the population. And from that point of view, you actually need to have a lot of your own people killed in order to garner that, that kind of sympathy. Yes. So the group is not necessarily trying to protect the people that it represents. What it's trying to do is get the target to increase the group's strength by undermining its own legitimacy and re responding in such an overwhelming, provoked way that Ultimately, the group also loses. Usually both sides lose, but it does, depending on what happens, if it evolves into a larger war, as happened in the First World War, that kind of strategy can certainly change history, which is, which is something that a group wants to do. So far, we have compellence and we have provocation. Polarization is the next strategy. Polarization is trying to divide and delegitimize a government. And it usually drives itself toward the effects of a terrorist attack on the domestic politics of the state. What the group is trying to do is force the regime sharply to the right and then force populations to choose either between a terrorist group's cause and brutal state repression. So it divides a polity so that it's very difficult for the state to continue to govern and to have the legitimacy among its own population to be able to govern. You're trying to drive people apart so that it's not a viable state. And this was an attractive strategy and has been an attractive strategy against democracies. And it's appeared regularly throughout the 20th and 21st centuries. It's pretty, pretty common, like the LTTE in its early years in Sri Lanka. The Irish Republican Army, the PIRA in Northern Ireland, was trying to polarize that population between the two sides. There are lots of other examples. Well, polarization is trying to undermine the actual state and its ability to continue to be viable. And in, in that situation, the terrorist actors are part of the state, in a sense. They're, they're members of the state, but they're trying to foment a revolution from within it, it, it sounds. In the response, perhaps. Remember, most of the time, terrorism is, is almost defined as being carried out by a non-state actor, not because states don't engage in terror and in horrendous uses of violence that are wrong, but because there are other ways that we can define what states do. Crimes against humanity, carrying out genocide, carrying out violations of the laws of war. There's a whole structure, a legal structure to define what a state does. And that is not the case with non-state actors. So when they engage in that kind of violence, then then I think it's 
And I think it's terrorism. Yeah, but I'm thinking of the, the Russian situation where you have Russians trying to undermine the state in order to then have a revolution to make a different kind of state. Yeah, I don't think that Norodnaya Volya um, thought through its ends that clearly, I, but uh, they definitely were trying to provoke the state to cause something to happen. All right, and the, and the fourth fourth strategy? Okay, so we've had compellence, provocation, polarization, and then we have mobilization. And mobilization is trying to recruit and rally the masses to a cause. So terrorist attacks might be intended to inspire current or former or potential supporters of a group. And what they do is they use the reaction of the state as a means rather than an end. In other words, it might not be that the target was the purpose in, in any case. What really the terrorist group was trying to do is carry out a target against a state that other people who are watching might hate or might react extremely negatively to the state's response and therefore drive themselves toward the terrorist groups. So recruiting and rallying to the cause, that's happened a number of times. The campaign of bombings and assassinations in the late 19th century did that for the anarchist movement. There were a lot of people who were driven toward anarchist violence as a result. The 1972 Munich Olympics massacre did that for Palestinian nationalism. Before the 1972 massacre where they had almost one in five people in, throughout the world watching, very few people knew about the Palestinians. So even though that was an absolute horrendous disaster, not only for the 11 Israeli athletes who were so horrifically murdered, but it was also technically a disaster for the Palestinians because it was a failed operation in tactical terms. Nonetheless, the Palestinian cause in the broader sense was able to mobilize a great deal more support for complicated reasons, but they had access to a platform, the tele televised Olympics, which they were able to use to mobilize. So that's the fourth type of strategy. It might be that the relationship between the two sides is not the point at all. What's really happening is a group is trying to increase its own support. And, and to wrap your mind around it, you have to recognize that there are people who would have been excited by the massacre of the Israeli athletes. That as horrendous as heinous it was for most people, there's going to be a small minority of people who are going to be excited that, oh, this is what a coup that was in a sense. Yes. And this is why it's always very difficult to talk about terrorism, because you have to talk about people's agony and murder and horrendous, shocking events. And then you have to recognize that there's something in our human condition that some people throughout the world are not repulsed by violence, but actually attracted to it, or in some ways find it inspirational. And unfortunately, we see that also with the mass shootings that are proliferating in the United States. Right. In, in those cases, it seems almost blind, but it, it does seem that almost all the time, the perpetrator of the violence, whether it's a terrorist one or a lone wolf thing in the United States, that, that there's some reason to be angry and resentful. And there's a kind of unleashing of that anger and resentment. And it doesn't seem to matter necessarily who the target is always. But then you have situations where the target is all important, that the, there's a kind of glee at finally sticking it to the, the oppressor if they're seen that way. Exactly right. So that's why you have to figure out what the group is trying to accomplish. And by the way, these things are not mutually exclusive. Sometimes groups have more than one of these four strategies. But any given attack, you can pretty much define, at least according to how a group is structured, what their objectives are, and how the attack is carried out, you can see what their strategy is, is in terms of what they're trying to accomplish. 
So let's talk just a little bit more about the dynamics of terrorism before we talk about Hamas. You've, of course, identified terrorism as a voyeuristic phenomenon, that it's the audience that, that really is one of the, the targets. And that as such, especially when that's the dominant dynamic, that terrorist leaders tend to be sophisticated manipulators of information. They're actually quite talented in a way. And, and of course, in modern times with the internet, that's become ever more effective. Yes, they have different levels of talent or lack of talent. And sometimes how they draw people to follow them depends on their charismatic personality. Sometimes it depends upon the kind of support they get from, if it's state-sponsored terrorism, it can be much more the kind of support they have behind them. But individually as terrorist leaders, there's usually considerable strategic thinking or at least the desire to use a position of relative weakness, but turn it around and turn it into a position of relative strength. So terrorist, terrorist leaders, unlike most, what most people believe, they do not tend to come from the downtrodden. They tend to come from the better educated and at least middle class of any society. So you, of course, asked the $64,000 question, how does terrorism end? And as you point out in your book, that trying to end terrorism by resolving the root causes of the conflict almost never works. So with the Israeli-Palestinian situation, you have narratives on both sides and you can talk to you until you're blue in the face and maybe get a little bit more empathy from each side, but it's, that doesn't seem to be the primary way that, that a conflict ends, that you advocate instead to actually examine how various terrorist groups end. And that's a, that's a pretty interesting take on things. It's not the usual one, I don't think. I, I don't know that I would go as far as you just stated it. I don't think it's true that ending terrorism is completely unrelated to ending the causes of terrorism. I think they are very deeply related, but usually you have to understand what a group is trying to accomplish and what strategies they're using, and then figure out how that group is likely to end. And oftentimes, especially if they're using a strategy of mobilization, you can undercut their strategy of mobilization by peeling people away in terms of their potential for popular support for that group. And peeling those people away means identifying and addressing the sources of injustice. So I guess what I would say, I would put it a little differently. I would say that you can't just look at the cause and then how to ameliorate the sources of grievance. You also have to look at what the group is trying to accomplish and how to undermine what it's trying to accomplish to end it. Yeah, I, I didn't mean not look at causes in the present, but I'm talking about looking at the history. Oh, I see. Yes. The background history and what happened 50 years ago and resolving what happened then. So in the Israeli-Palestinian situation, was it true that there was a war to eliminate Israel or things like that? Or was it really Palestinian territory to begin with and it got invaded by Europeans? Just this, all these different ways of looking at it that are hard to resolve. No, I agree. But I just don't want to go so far as to say that the cause has nothing to do with how you end it. Yeah. And of course, historical causes, some of them have a way of continuing in the, into the press, the dynamics of it continue. So, okay, so we're, we're up to the real question, how does terrorism end? So maybe you can give us some examples of how the various, because there's, it really depends on the situations. And, and as you say, terrorism always ends, which is reassuring, although I think in the Israel-Palestine situation, my, my brother who lives in Jerusalem used to say he was optimistic for peace in the near centuries, but now I think he's only optimistic in the near millennia. 
there's, there's some situations are so intractable that it's hard to be at all optimistic. But on the other hand, as you say, terrorism does end, and you have plenty of examples in your book. Yes. So maybe just as a little background to what I tried to do and why I did it this way, I looked at 457, I think it was, anyway, close to 460 groups, and then looked for patterns in how those groups had ended. And I also looked at how long their lifespans had been. So given 450, 460 groups, what was interesting to look across the whole landscape of terrorism, and I went back to the 19th century and then came up to the 20, 24, early 21st century, the thing that really struck me and one of the conclusions that I thought was surprising to me was that most groups really only last eight to 10 years. So we focus a tremendous amount of attention on a small number of groups that have had much greater longevity. But if you look at terrorism as a phenomenon overall, it tends to be short-lived because it has within it the seeds of its own destruction. I do have to say that I'm an optimist when it comes to human nature. And much of what the terrorist groups are doing in using shocking violence to try to achieve a political aim, the most common way that they end is by alienating and repulsing the audience that they're trying to reach. What I would start out by saying is that most often terrorism is unsuccessful and it has a short lifespan and not least because most of the states that terrorist groups are trying to fight against are so much stronger and usually almost virtually always succeed in these kinds of contests. The good news is that terrorist groups don't last that long on average throughout the world. So there are six different ways that terrorist groups end and they're pathways out of terrorism. And, and again, they are not mutually exclusive. Sometimes you have more than one in combination and I'll explain that in a second. But the first pathway that is one of the ones that the United States was focusing on, and frankly, so has Israel in using the targeting of targeted killings of leaders, is so-called decapitation or the capturing or killing of a terrorist leader. And there are lots of examples where getting rid of the leader had a huge mortal impact upon the group itself. And so sometimes it's the arrest of a leader and sometimes it's the killing of a leader. So cases of arrest include people like Guzman and the Shining Path, Shoko Asahara and, the, and Aum Shinrikyo, if you know that Japanese group that was a millennial pseudo-religious group. Let's see, the Philippines, Abu Sayyaf, Russian and Chechen separatist leaders, when they were killed, that was very important to ending terrorism within Chechnya, at least. Israel's so-called targeted killings. All of these are examples where there was an effort to use decapitation to end a group. Now, the problem with that pathway is that it doesn't work that often because usually what happens is that in undermining a group, it's better to arrest the leader rather than to kill the leader because you can hold up the arrest and humiliate the person and publicize that. So the state is essentially counter-mobilizing against the group by showing the weakness of the leader when they're in jail. Rather than creating a martyr. Exactly. So the, that's the other side. If you kill the leader, then you create a martyr. And sometimes you're in worse shape because you draw a lot more people in anger against the state and you can actually draw more people to the group itself. Because remember, again, we're using this question of mobilization, not just tit for tat. Groups that have ended through decapitation have tended to be hierarchically structured, characterized by a cult of personality. That's a tautology because, of course, the guy or gal who's in charge has to be really valuable to the group and usually lacking a viable successor. All of those things are pretty, pretty obvious. 
And frankly, none of them described Al-Qaeda, by the way. So one of the reasons why we still had a problem with Al-Qaeda after bin Laden was killed, whether or not that was the right thing to do tactically, it was not the way to end the group in terms of its strategic presence. So anyway, that's the first pathway. And there are not a lot of examples historically of groups that have ended permanently as a result of capturing or killing a leader. So the second big pathway is negotiations. And that can achieve the, some of the limited aims of a group. And there can be a short-term decline in terrorism, like for example, the provisional IRA with the 1998 Good Friday Accord is an example of negotiations. We can talk about the Israeli-Palestinian peace agreements, certainly a fraught discussion there. The attempt to try to end terrorism through negotiations was unsuccessful. They tried to negotiate with the Tamil Tigers. The thing about negotiations is that it's a lot more complicated than just trying to come up with an agreement. You have to have the long-term goal, which is a viable outcome to the talks, and then the short-term goal, which is a reduction in violence, those two things might be at odds. So in other words, when you have an agreement, a lot of times it's very common for the short-term amount of violence to go up because you have splinter groups that are against the goal of the negotiations. Yeah, that certainly was the case during the Oslo uh, years. And I, I remember Rabin's famous uh, quotation that you have to fight terrorism as if there's no peace process and pursue peace as if there's no terrorism. And what a difficult task that is. Exactly. But what's really interesting is that there are a very small proportion of terrorist groups globally throughout history that negotiate at all. There are only about 18% that actually do any kind of negotiations. And is that because this group is, is reluctant to negotiate or the, or the state, or is it both? It's usually the state, but the groups that negotiate are usually the ones that are longest lived. So they're not the average lifespan, they're the ones that have been able to hang around for a longer period of time. The average age of groups that negotiate is between 20 and 25 years, sometimes even a little bit longer than that. And of course, as I said, the average age of a terrorist group is only eight, eight to 10 years. The state has to be convinced that there's no alternative essentially in order to engage in negotiations. And there has to be somebody to negotiate with, that's another problem. You have to have someone who's able to hold together the terrorist groups without the kinds of splinter groups that can undermine negotiations. But also on the state side, if you've got factions that are working against your negotiations, they're not going to be successful because you don't have a unified state that's able to come together with and provide any kind of viable agreement. It's extremely difficult to negotiate, but sometimes negotiations do work. And certainly we saw that with the Good Friday Accords in Northern Ireland. And so I think it's well worth remembering that it's usually effective to try negotiations if you're a strong enough state, because you can gain a lot more leverage with respect to the terrorist group's aims, because what you're doing is you're undermining the argument that there's no other pathway except using this horrendous violence. So even if it's not successful to resolving the conflict, it, it could at least mitigate it. Exactly. So you have to think of negotiations that way. What you're trying to do is manage the conflict and undermine the cause and the potential mobilization capability of the group. Yeah, of course, if, it, if it's only mitigating it a little bit and the, the root causes of the, by root causes, I don't mean necessarily mean history, but the, the ongoing grievances are not really improved, then eventually the confidence in that negotiation process can decline. So that's, I think that's part of what happened with the Oslo 
peace process, that it, it wasn't decl- d- diminishing the problems on either side. Terrorism kept going on and getting worse. And the building of settlements on the West Bank was getting worse. <laughs> so it, it, it didn't seem to be bearing any fruit. And then that undermines the confidence in the process itself. That's very true. But the truth of the matter is that when you have a very long standing terrorist group, you have to try to undermine its cause in some way. And there's almost never any viable long-term alternative to some kind of talks because you cannot simply, we'll get to this in a minute, but it's very difficult simply to kill everyone. And that's the repression strategy. Exactly. So we're going to get to that, but we build these according to how hard they are and how commonly they're used. So the next pathway is success. And success is sometimes the case. This is always a sensitive point whenever I talk about this, frankly. So success by the terrorist group. By the terrorist yeah. group. Right. So the group ends because they've achieved their aim or some element of that aim, but usually it's the aim. And then they go out of, they go out of business. So in the cases that I looked at, there were two extensive cases in the book. One was Umkanto, which is the military wing of the African National Congress. And the other one was Urgun with the establishment of the state of Israel. So in both cases, what you had was a dividing. Once you had the achievement of the aim, you had a dividing of the leaders. And especially if you look at the example of the African National Congress, Mandela immediately came out and condemned the use of terrorism. So you have to disassociate yourself if you're going to govern a country and achieve success with any kind of use of that violence. And so those members of Mkanta were immediately pariahs and you had the ability for a, a the post-apartheid regime to take over. And, and that was a mark of being a great leader that he was able to do that. Yes. So that's very important that you have someone who's got that kind of ability to have a vision. Imagine what that was like for Mandela, having been in jail all those years. A remarkable man. Uh, with the establishment of the state of Israel, Urgun also achieved its aims. So Urgun um, ceased to exist and you had the transition to a legitimate state. And then the aims, the immediate aims was to get uh, Britain out of Israel or out of Palestine, whatever you want to call it. And then also with the UN voting Israel in as a country, so that those two two steps. That's right. But achievement of a strategic game for a terrorist group is extremely rare. And Irgun didn't do it all by itself. There were other groups. That's right. So usually there's a legitimate track as well as the terrorist track. So if you're only looking at the terrorist group, you're talking about the ending of that group, even as there are other actors who can be more legitimate governors. So anyway, it's it's rare that the aim of that group gets achieved because usually they undermine what the more legitimate actors are trying to achieve. And so fewer than 5% in the groups that I looked at had by their own standards achieved their aims or achieved success. Terrorist Terrorist groups are almost always unable to achieve their aims. So then the next pattern is failure. And I think that's one of the most important and it certainly is the most common among all the groups that I looked at. And there were two different reasons why failure happened. The first one was that popular support was lost. And the second was that a group would implode or engage in fratricide once members of the group within the group would start to fight each other instead of engaging in terrorism against innocent targets. And that was almost always the most common way that a group ended. There was a disagreement over a cause or there was one party killing another because they wanted relative control within 
the the broader community. Sometimes uh, groups lose popular support, and that can happen for a number of reasons. That's the other big category. So there's implosion, and then there's losing popular support within this broader framework of failure. Sometimes you lose popular support because there's the offer of a more attractive alternative, things like reform movements. People spend, states spend a lot of money on providing jobs. That certainly happened in Northern Ireland. There was a tremendous amount of money that was put into Northern Ireland by the Brits. But it's a complicated calculation because sometimes reform movements can actually result in increased instability and a sense of opportunity. And that was certainly what happened with the social revolutionaries in late 19th century Russia. Or sometimes relevance to a cause can be lost. So most of those Marxist groups, after the ending of the Soviet Union, they were undermined not only in their physical sort of financial support, but also Marxism just looked like a empty cause. And the most important way, though, that failure ends a group is by a terrorist group's own miscalculations. And that means targeting errors. So attacks can cause revulsion among their own constituency. This was happening a lot with Al-Qaeda, but it also happened with the Omar bombings in Northern Ireland, the GAI's killing of tourists. If you recall, I think it was like 62 tourists in Luxor, Egypt, the Red Brigades in Aldomoro. Their killing of Aldomoro turned most of their supporters against them. There are lots of other examples of terrorist groups that target innocent targets and then engage exact such repulsion among the people that they're trying to attract that they actually, their targeting error is what kills them. So with the Al-Qaeda instance, they were beginning to target other Muslims. Exactly. By far, the highest percentage of people who were who were suffering as a result of Al-Qaeda attacks were Muslims, which are the very people that they claim to be acting on behalf of. So when you got into this infighting that was going on about whether or not to kill other Muslims, calling other Muslims apostates, um, attacking the the economy of Muslim state, uh, sectarian disputes, this discord within Al-Qaeda was extremely undermining of it. Is there one more before repression or are we up to repression? Repression, which is a strange thing to say. (laughs) (laughs) The fifth pathway is repression. That means deliberately using overwhelming force in order to try to kill virtually everyone. And if all you want to do is kill everyone, it's certainly historically possible to do that. And frankly, Stuart, most states, when they first react to a terrorist attack, particularly a a really horrific large terrorist attack like happened um, in Israel with the killing of all those 1,400 poor innocent people. But anyway, most states, it's very common historically for them to engage in repression in the aftermath because you're driven by emotion, you're driven by a desire to make sure that the government seems to be acting upon the pain and agony of the people. Yeah, in in your book, you say, pundits who argue that the reflexive use of force against terrorism today is abnormal or unusual are either being hypocritical or absent-minded, or both. A state's number one imperative is security for its citizens. Yes. So the thing is that repression has resulted in ending a number of groups. We already talked about Neurodnaya the Shining Path, In Peru, that was a case where there was tremendous repression in addition to capturing the leader. Those were two pathways. The Russians tried to wipe out terrorism in Chechnya using repression just by basically bombing Grozny and just using enormous, overwhelming force. The Russians have, of all the countries I can think of, that's been their preferred method of responding to terrorist attacks. 
they tend to use that kind of reaction most often rather compared to other forms of reacting to terrorist groups. The, the difficulty with using repression is that it doesn't usually work. It tends to export the problem to a neighboring region. So for with respect to Russia, it exported the problem of Chechnya and many of the Chechens themselves were displaced to other parts of the Caucasus, Dagestan, Ingushetia. You'll remember that siege of the Beslan uh, school which killed so many children, hundreds of children. It was just a horrible expansion of terrorist attacks. And of course, the Chechens also carried out and continued to be involved in terrorist attacks in other parts of the world. And they brought terrorist attacks to Moscow as well. So it exports the problem to another region. You're not necessarily getting to the bottom of the cause, even if you've killed all the people who are in that location. It works best in places where you can profile the people that you're trying to kill. So in other words, where you can divide those who are engaged in terrorism from the broader population, it, that's when it's most effective. It's quite difficult to do that. And it often uh, goes against civil liberties and human rights, not just in the area where you're carrying out the repression, but it undermines the legitimacy of the state engaging in the repression. So what you have is a lose situation. If you've got a democracy that is engaging in repression, many times they lose the support of their own population as well. And there's the support of international audience that may be watching them. So it's a kind of a competition over the audience then. The last pathway, which is the sixth one, and that's reorientation, where a group shifts from using primarily terrorist attacks to becoming an insurgency or even becoming a civil war faction. And that's what happened with ISIS. ISIS was engaged in terrorist attacks in the beginning. And of course, they I'm not saying that they were not a terrorist group, but they were able to gather so many followers and mobilize so many people to their cause that they eventually grew into a very large organization, were able to take territory and had a kind of a pseudo state conventional army. That's different from being, strictly speaking, a terrorist group. And that's a really bad outcome. You do not want the group to be able to in a sense, end terrorism by no longer having to use that weak tactic and instead being able to act as a sort of a pseudo state with an army. All right. So getting now to the situation in Gaza, let's see if we can apply some of these ideas. And I would imagine that you would agree with me that this is one of the most, if not the most difficult ever situation in terms of its intractability and complexity. And it just seems so so incredibly difficult, and the options seem so poor for for Israel, especially. It's hard to, to see what option is really, um, other than than resuming some kind of negotiation, of course, with different leadership on both sides. There's that, but in the immediate situation, what the options are, and and the repression is, of course, at a very high level, and the feeling of insecurity by the Israelis is at an extremely high level. I think there's really wall-to-wall support almost among the Israeli public from what I've been able to gauge. There's some far leftists that are against what's going on, but I think the center left and the right are very much behind what's going on now. I understand that. And I feel just tremendous sympathy for the situation. I also feel sympathy for the innocent Palestinians Uh, not Hamas, not PIJ, but civilians who are being abandoned essentially by Hamas, which claims to be promoting their interests, but they're using civilians as 
I, I think they're engaging in indirect terrorism by offering their own civilians as human shields. And human sacrifices, because as we've noted before, the, you know, the more casualties there are, the better it is for Hamas's recruitment. That's what Hamas seems to feel, to believe. So I think we're up to 10,000 casualties right now. And I, it just, it's a nightmare. The whole thing is extraordinarily difficult to watch. What worries me about what Israel is doing is that, of course, repression and the killing of innocent civilians, it's always morally and legally wrong if you're not making every possible effort to protect civilians. I'm not going to judge one way or another because I'm not among the military leaders of Israel able to make that assessment of what exactly they're doing. But what my argument is about is how do you end terrorism and repression in the way that Israel is engaging in it is not likely to be strategically successful, judging by all of the things that I've learned. I'm certainly not by itself. It can't be the end game. It's just, a, from an Israeli point of view, it's a necessary condition, but nowhere near a sufficient one. Yes, but also it would be far more effective if Israel were able to try to divide the supporters of Hamas rather than simply only focus on killing everyone that has any kind of relationship to Hamas. If you can divide, peel away some of their supporters, then you can get into the pathway of failure. And I think that would be a promising way for them to be thinking rather than simply using such overwhelming force that instead you've got this potential to spin into a broader regional war that would look much more like what happened before the First World War. That's my real worry. I am afraid that Israel is going to undermine its case in such a way that you, we end up with, the, of course, the Palestinian authorities. You've got the Palestinian authority on the West Bank joining in, and you've got Hezbollah, and then you have Iran, and you have a broader regional war that ultimately serves Hamas's interests, even if Hamas and virtually all of its leadership are dead. Because you have tremendous support for the cause among Muslims the world over. It wouldn't surprise me if there were hundreds of millions of supporters in that sense of, of the goal, not necessarily the method, but the goal. I think what you do is you expand the number of people who are sympathetic to the plight of innocent Palestinians, civilians, and that it may or may not be connected to the original Palestinian cause, but you certainly are undermining the long-term goal of trying to end terrorism in the region. Now, morning from an Israeli point of view, there's a feeling of hopelessness about peace. Um, maybe that will change after this is over. But for a long time, there was a very insensitive phrasing of it uh, that the Israel just needed to mow the grass, that to diminish Hamas's uh, military capability every so often and keep it in check so that they're not much of a threat. And now there's a almost universal recognition within Israel that didn't work and that the capabilities have grown to a very frightening degree. And then with the support of Iran's supplying of weaponry and the, the money by Qatar, which was being diverted for building of tunnels, that it's only a matter of time before Hamas starts acquiring much more powerful and much more accurate rockets, in which case all of Israel would become un uninhabitable. So there, there's, I think, maybe some logic to it that the capability level has to be diminished before there can be any further peace process. I agree with that. I just think that if it's possible to be more discriminant in the use of violence and to try to undermine the ability of Hamas to hold its own civilians, to try to move more civilians to this southern part of Gaza and certainly to not 
target any of the civilians in the southern part of Gaza, that would be a much better way to find a long-term solution, whatever happens to the fighters of Hamas. And it's probably, I would imagine, a matter of degree rather than kind. It's going to be impossible to not have some civilian casualties in this kind of situation because of the intertwining of the population and Hamas using civilians as, as shields and putting their bases underneath schools and, and mosques and, and hospitals. But as you say, if it would be in Israel's interest to do to the maximum to protect civilians. Yes, and I think it would be in Israel's interest to allow more food aid, more fuel, but especially food, more humanitarian aid to reach the Gaza civilians that are in the southern part. I think it's, I've heard the argument that they're very afraid that the resources that they would let through would, would actually go to Hamas fighters. But I think the cost-benefit analysis is that a very public effort on the part of the Israeli government to show that there's a difference between civilians who don't deserve this kind of repression and Hamas and PIJ, which were behind the attacks, they've got to divide those two things. Otherwise, they're not going to be able to make the case that this is a legitimate use of violence that won't draw other people in. So when you say divide the two to to the extent possible, which is not going to be that great, <laughs> I don't think. And there's going to be still a lot high civilian casualty. So maybe instead of 10,000 so far, it would be 5,000 so far. It's still going to be a very high number. Let's put it this way. There are lots of audiences. And Israel, if it were to take a very public effort to try to show that it is d- discriminating and trying to protect civilians, even as it's engaged in this Incursion. I think that it would support Israel's cause. Right now, there's, it doesn't seem as if there's anything they can easily point to other than saying that they're trying to spare civilians, but the, the evidence says otherwise that people see in their newspapers. I, I think Israel could do a great deal for itself if it were have public efforts to try to help the civilians in the ways that they can. Yeah, and unfortunately, I think this is where there's an anti-Semitism factor in the sense that Israelis feel that almost whatever they do, they've gotten tremendous criticism. I think there have been more resolutions in the UN against Israel than any other country. There's been a real lack of, of, uh, of support for their situation uh, worldwide for so long that I, I think this, and I'm not, it's not excusing this, but there's, I think, a, a a common Israeli attitude is that we have to stop caring what the world thinks. We just have to take care of ourselves, which is a very self-defeating attitude, but I think it's an understandable one. I agree with that. It's a very self-defeating attitude and it's an understandable one. But what I want to do is try somehow to end terrorism in that area. And if you don't have a broader, longer term strategic perspective on that, it's not going to happen. And we're talking about a two state solution eventually. Yes, I believe so. Which is, that's the end game. But it's a difficult one to, to accomplish, obviously. Yes, not least because there's been a tremendous expansion of the settlements in parts of the West Bank, which were designated to be part of the two-state solution. And there's somewhere in your book where you talk about one of the factors that tends to mitigate against the success of negotiations is the presence of suicide bombing. Yeah. Because we have a history of that. That's been part of the history, too. And I think the attacks on October 7th were so viscerally, personally heinous. Who was targeted, how they were targeted, where they were targeted. The party participants were flower children. 
And the, the, the particular section of Israel that's near Gaza was mostly people that want two states. <laughs> so it was targeting the exact opposite of the people that they might have had qualms with. But in fact, Hamas doesn't want a two-state solution. It wants a one-state solution, an Islamic state solution. So that's, that's I think it goes almost without saying, I think you'll probably agree with this, that Hamas is not the group that you can negotiate a two-state solution with. And yet you have to negotiate with, with, with a Palestinian group that actually wants to have coexistence. Oh, I agree with you that you're not going to negotiate with Hamas. But, but the fact that they attacked the very part of Israeli society that would be most likely to be wanting to accommodate a two-state solution shows you that it was not about attacking those individuals. It was about having a broader, shocking impact upon a larger audience. So if you could point to one or two things that makes you optimistic, you, you, you describe yourself as an optimist in this area, which is amazing. <laughs> I guess that's the only way you could continue working in this area. What factor gives you any optimism at all for an eventual resolution of uh, the Israeli-Palestinian uh, conflict? I think that it's ultimately going to be obvious. It might be 10 years, it might be a hundred years, but it's ultimately going to be the case that there has to be some negotiated solution where there's there are two states. So am I optimistic about that in the short term? Certainly not. But I think there are small slivers of hope right now. I think the fact that the United States is supporting Israel very robustly, but also trying to encourage Israel to use more discrimination and to provide greater humanitarian aid to try to modulate what it's doing, that, that gives me hope. Because if you can make sure that Israel does not completely lose, I, I actually, Stuart, I, I understand exactly where Israelis are coming from in, in seeing anti-Semitism and, and the fact that they feel that the world is always going to be against them. But I personally don't think that's true. I think anti-Semitism is on the rise and it's horrible and it has to be eradicated. But that's not the same as saying that there isn't a hugely supportive and sympathetic part of the world population that would come to Israel's side if it was trying to have a solution just as they did in the 1990s. There was extreme excitement about that, even though it wasn't viable. So I personally think that that Israel, with perhaps new leaders, and certainly with the support of the United States, which is a strong card to be playing, could ultimately get to the point where they could also have new leadership on the side of the Palestinians and have a negotiated solution. I don't see any alternative to that in the long run. Thank you so much. I think that's a good point to end on. I always like, when possible, to end with an optimistic note. Audrey Kurth Cronin, one of the world's leading experts on security and how conflicts end, and the uh, founding director currently of the Carnegie Mellon University's Institute for Strategy and Technology, the author of four books on terrorism, including How Terrorism Ends. Thank you so much for coming on to Delving In. It's been a pleasure, Stuart. Thank you. I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.